I hope he didn't promise more than I can deliver. We'll see. But there are, there are way more better men and women uh, to address this subject with you. I, I can, but it's kind of hard for you to get them here. R.C. Sproul, uh, Alistair Begg, John MacArthur, Stephen Nichols, um, uh, Oberman, Matthews. There's just, just a variety of, of individuals who uh, uh, probably are much better equipped and qualified with all the, all the other letters behind their names uh, and that with you. But you're stuck with me today. And so hopefully this will be a blessing uh, today and tomorrow. You can pray for the kids, uh, the young men and women who are in the church history class right now, because <laughs> they just had to put up with an hour of me. And some of them had to put up with three hours because they were in the minor prophets class. And they're probably wondering, like my grandfather did years ago, doesn't that kid ever shut up? <laughs> and, um, and so <laughs> there, are, there are a lot of things that I've, I've said over the years that I probably should have just shut up. But one thing I can't shut up about is this, this subject. Uh, because it is near and dear to my heart, uh, having grown up um, in a Reformed faith uh, in the Lutheran Church, uh, in particular for those of you keeping score of Missouri Synod for part of my life, and then eventually uh, what would become the Lutheran Church of America, and then now it's merged and become the ELCA, which has gone very much off of its uh, historical roots. And so I, I grew up with that background, and I grew up uh, Reformation. You know, some people had Halloween parties. We had Reformation parties. And we used to joke, people always bob for apples. And we said, well, no, we bob for Catholics. And so that, and, and then, I married, then I married a Catholic gal, and uh, she didn't think that was too funny. But uh, I said, well, that's a, you know, when I grew up, that's all I knew. I mean, there's Lutherans and Catholics. I didn't know there are other people out there other than Jews and maybe Muslims. And uh, come to find out there's a whole host of other people in Bible churches, Baptist churches, Methodist churches, and all those things as well. But um, as Danny mentioned, this October... Uh, the 31st on All Hallows' Eve, because All Saints' Day in the Catholic Church uh, is on November 1st. And that, that is a, a sacred time, a time of the, the church gathering and, and festivities and things. And so knowing uh, partly two things, that Frederick the Wise, his elector, actually his prince, uh, over, over the area of Wittenberg in Saxony, and, and basically his employer, because he supported the, the uh, church there, and it was partly supported through the sale of indulgences. So both the University of Wittenberg and the church uh, received a lot of their income uh, from indulgences. And in this case, the relics that the church housed, and he had some new relics. He was going to uh, show those on, on, on that Saturday and um, display those. And so with the whole issue of indulgences coming to the forefront with Johann Tetzel and the, uh, the indulgence that the church had offered at that time, uh, Luther had to act on behalf of his people. And so he nailed his thesis to the door, and uh, as they say, the rest is history, because that's really the, the time that we, we date uh, the, the start of the Reformation uh, to that time. And let me just uh, maybe give you a couple definitions. The term Reformation, uh, or the magisterial reformers, is the term that is used of men like Luther, Calvin, Zwingli, Knox, and others. Uh, Magisterial, because of the church's magisterium, the teaching of the church, the, the glory of the church. And they wanted to reform because they saw abuses in the church. They did not, they did not want to start new churches. They didn't want to start a Lutheran church, a Reformed Presbyterian, Episcopal church, and a Baptist church. They, they just wanted to reform the church because there were abuses both in the power structure, the theology, and in the practical living of many of the churchmen of that era. Okay. And so they wanted to reform it to get it back to its, its purity, to its grandeur. And what resulted as a result of that, though, however, was the establishment of some other churches. And so Reformation really just is we, we want to reform it to make it better, 
make it get back to its original. So if you went into house and restored, if you will, that's a little different than reform. Reform might be you know, it's just a little paint on the wall, you know, clean up the house. Restoring would be kind of tearing it down and restarting it again, which is what the Anabaptists would do, and we'll talk about that some other time. But the term Protestant was not a term that they chose for themselves, but a term that was given them by the Catholics because they protested um, some of the abuses and the theological issues within the church. And so their protests that were given and hope were going to be addressed, which uh, weren't or were denied, uh, hence the term stuck. So Protestant as opposed to Catholic or Orthodox is where we get that term. Uh, we, there were problems from the beginning in the church. I think any of you know that just from your study of Scripture, reading the book of Acts, uh, whatever history that you, you have read, there have always been problems in the church. I mean, goodness, goodness sakes, I mean, you, you don't go very far, right, in the book, and suddenly we have an issue about widows, some being fed, some not being fed. We go a few more pages over in the book of Acts, and a few more chapters, and here's the issue of salvation. Do you have to keep the law and believe in Jesus, or is it by faith alone and Jesus alone that you're saved? So the church has always had issues. So that's, that's really not the important part. The important part is, what, what have been those issues? And I would submit to you the same thing has been the same thing for almost 2,000 years. In other words, authority. Where, where's our authority come from? Uh, the authority of Scripture, authority of the church. Is it a combination of those two? Uh, where does that derive from? Uh, the issue of canonicity then is going to rise out of that. The issues of inerrancy and hermeneutics. Uh, the person of God. How do we understand God? Is he one in one being? Or is he God in three persons, blessed trinity? And if we say Jesus is, is God, he's God and man, how does that work? Uh, fully man, fully God, do they mingle? Is he two-thirds, one-third, half and half? Or is he God and man without a mingling of the two, and yet not two separate wills, they cooperate and work together? You know, the hypostatic union. So there have always been issues of some kind or another. Uh, the work of Jesus, what, was it a payment to Satan, or was it a payment to, to God? So that the wrath that we deserve was on him, and the wrath of God was appeased because the only begotten Son took our place. Substitutionary atoning death. So his work and his person were issues. And then lastly, salvation. How, how might a man or woman be saved? Almost from the get-go, that has been an issue. How are we saved? Jesus plus or Jesus only? How, how are we saved? So they've been there, and they still are, to one degree or the other with us, and still really, in many respects, what separates us historically uh, from many other churches, and not just Catholic churches, I might add, today as well. And so, the, again, the principles are not, not totally new. Uh, some of these principles that we're going to look at, sola scriptura, uh, sola fide, sola, uh, grace alone, all those things, we'll look at over the course of the next few weeks, not just with me, but with some of the other men as well. Not necessarily new to Luther. Uh, the folks in history class already knows that, but some of you may not realize, long before Luther came along with the priesthood of the believer, uh, spoke out against indulgences, men like John Wycliffe and John Huss had already done that. And so there were already those within the church who saw that righteousness isn't earned, it's a gift. But trying to articulate that, sort of like trying to articulate the issue of, okay, God, Jesus is God. And so, talking about usia and persona, how, how does that work? Three person. And so, trying to explain it. And here comes this Lutheran monk, or what would be eventually a Lutheran, Lutheran pastor, uh, a man by the name of Luther, 
who through a series of events in his life, uh, is going to come to realization as he's reading the word of God that there are problems. And he's going to address some uh, interesting aspects of what people had struggled with. And there's four of them in particular. Authority, church, worship, and salvation. The nature of authority, where, where, where does it stem from? The church was teaching that the church, as the Pope represents him as the vicar of Christ on earth, when he speaks, it would not become official dogma until the 1800s, but when he speaks, he speaks truth. And he speaks, the church tells you what is right and what is not right. And if the churches don't, for, certainly the councils do. They, they will tell you, Here, here's the most holy faith. This is what we believe. This is Christianity. And if you step out of it, okay, it wasn't just you get excommunicated or disciplined from a church, but because Christianity had become Christendom, it became the penalty of death in many cases, depending on what it was that you opposed in the church. And so the nature of authority, where was it? Was it in Pope, church, councils, or is it in the Word of God? Where, where's our ultimate authority? When they looked at the nature of the church, what is the church? Is, is, is this a, a sacerdotal? Is this a hierarchical thing? Or, or, or is this really priesthood of believers? In, in, his, in his books on divine lordship, Wycliffe had really started this process by saying everything is a stewardship and all of us are stewards. And so there's no secular or sacred. Oh, yes, there are people who serve in capacities in ministry, but everything we do, even the princes that rule over us, is a stewardship from God. And so if they do not go according to Scripture, they can be defied. They can be held accountable for it. And all of us function together as priests before the Lord. First Peter tells us that. And so long before Luther came up with it, it had already been being articulated, but he kind of, if you will, put it on steroids. And he said it's not sacerdotal, it's not through the sacraments, it's not through a priest doing everything on your behalf, but it's you and I functioning together. We're the body of Christ. And so we are a royal priesthood who serves him in that capacity. Uh, corporately and individually as we go about our daily life. So whatever you do, if you, you milk a cow, you bag groceries, uh, you are a professor at MSU, you're a logger, you're a cowboy, you're a home, home uh, housewife, you're a house husband, whatever the case, whatever you do, you owe the glory of God because that is part of your duty to glorify him in all that you say and do. Then he addressed the issue of the authority of worship. Was worship centered on the sacraments? And that's all it is. You come up, you do the sacraments, or, or is there something else? And he, he liberated, if you will, worship service. So if you like, you like your choruses, you like your more free-flowing services, you like service where you can come in and you don't have to just totally be quiet. If you're sobbing, somebody can come over and hug you and talk to you. You like that. Thank the Reformers for it. Okay? And thank, thank the Reformers also for the fact that you can participate both in the bread and in the cup, not just the bread. And that when you come, that you can minister, and you can sing, and you can participate, and you can read Scripture, you can read the Gospel. I was asked by my one sister-in-law uh, and, and uh, her future husband if I, I would read at, at their wedding. And so I did. I got the Old Testament and the New Testament epistles, but I, I was not allowed to read the Gospel, because only a priest can read the Gospel. And I'm not a priest in the church. Because that, that, is, that is the Gospel of, of our Lord. Thanks be to God, if you've gone through the, the liturgy. And so... As, as I'm a mere man, even though I'm a pastor, 
I could not speak the gospel in the Catholic Church because I'm not a priest. So is, is, that, is that what it is? is? Is that really what worship is all about? Or is worship where we come to worship Him in prayer? We come to worship Him in music, and we come and worship Him as we hear the Word of God expounded, and we're exhorted, and we're challenged, and we're convicted, and we're changed. So the Holy Spirit takes the Word of God and energizes in our heart. Luther made the Word of God the center focus of service, not to worship the book, but because in the book we find the one who's worthy of our worship, correct? And so in light of that, music. And so he wrote these wonderful hymns, and many of the other reformers wrote hymns as well, to give us this theology in song form so uneducated people could learn it and enjoy it and really worship God, sing back to him his word in a modified form, if you will. And so if you like your music the way it is, thank the reformers, because they're the ones who gave it to you in that sense. But lastly, maybe more importantly, the nature of salvation. How, how is a man or woman saved? How are they? Are they saved through the system where you get, you're born, and you get baptized, and so you're justified? That starts you off, so that inherited sin from Adam's taken care of, but now as you grow, then you're going to be confirmed, and you receive the Holy Spirit, and then eventually you're going to get married, and then you're going to go to confession, and confess your sin, and then you're going to do penance, and then when you do your penance, then you can come and take the bread and the cup, which is a sacrifice again of Christ, and then now you're forgiven for the sins that you have committed, because you did your penance, and now the blood of Christ covers you until you sin again, and you've got to start the whole process all over again, and then hopefully somewhere along the line, after you get out of purgatory, after how many thousands or hundreds of millions of years, then you might get to heaven. As Luther came to realize as he read Scripture that we are justified by faith alone, in Christ alone, and that's by the very grace of God alone. It's a gift, as Ephesians 2, 8 and 9 tell us. And so he addressed those, those four areas, and probably better than any of the Reformers dealt with those. But as you imagine then, <clears throat> With the indulgence, um, this particular indulgence that was instituted, uh, two things unknown to Luther at the time and, and the others, was that this was an indulgence that Pope Leo X and um, Albert of Mans, Archbishop, the Archbishop of Mans, had come together to an agreement on. Albert wanted to buy another bishopry. So you could buy, that's called simony, buying church offices. And that was one of the abuses in the church. And so if you bought the office, you also got all the land and everything with it. And typically that was tax-free land. So anybody who worked the land and you sold the hay or the grain or the cattle, whatever, that money came into the church. Oh, by the way, it went to the bishop also. And so in order to do that, he had to pay for the bishopry. And he didn't have enough money. So like if you go buy a house, you don't have enough money, you got to go to Wells Fargo and get a loan, right? So he gets a loan. And the agreement was to pay back the loan. He would take half of the indulgence. Leo would get the other half. And that money, some would go into Leo's pocket. The rest would go to help refurbish St. Peter's, which Pope Julius had started prior to Leo's tenure. So unbeknownst to Luther and Frederick and so many other else in the Christian empire, this indulgence is being offered in order to profit two individuals. And so they sent a, a Dominican by the name of Johann Tetzel into Germany to go around Germany to raise the money for the indulgence. Frederick would not allow him into Saxony, his, his little realm, his uh, Gallatin Valley, if you will. But he could stand over on the border of Park County and Gallatin, and he could scream across with his bands and all the things he would do to draw attention that people could come and buy the indulgences. So Luther's people were going across the bridge, across the river, and going by in the indulgence. And this indulgence was said that if you bought this, 
You could be forgiven of all your sin. You could be pardoned from all of it. Not just a little bit, not just a thousand years out of purgatory, a million years out of purgatory, but all your sin would be pardoned. Even if you violated, and you understand that term, correct? You violated the Virgin Mary. You would have your sins absolved by the, the pontiff in Rome. And being the good shepherd that he was, and seeing, and it was an issue, it was an issue in the church. The churchmen debated the effectiveness and, and the rightness of uh, indulgences. But Luther finally couldn't take it any longer. And he, 95 theses that are going to address the issue, asking for open debate, not asking to start another church, not asking to get rid of the Pope, not asking to burn anybody at the stake. It is, let's debate this issue because there's a problem here. We have people buying a piece of paper and they don't come to see the priest and they come to the table in an unworthy manner. And Paul's very clear in 1 Corinthians 11, if you come to the table in an unworthy manner, what happens? Paul says some of you are asleep, some of you died, and some of you are sick. Don't come and eat unworthily. You're giving people a false sense of security because a piece of paper cannot take away sin. Only Christ can do that. So out of a shepherd for his flock, he wants to address this issue, and he invited debate. He wrote it in Latin. wasn't in the vernacular of the people. He wrote them in Latin, calling for a debate. Let's, let's figure this issue out, okay? Show me where I'm wrong if I'm wrong. Let's, let's work on the issue, which is what councils have done in the past, right? Let's sit down and figure this out. Is Jesus God? Man, okay, he is. How do we explain it? Here's how we're going to explain it. And what happened is those were taken from the door, translated the new printing press, which has been around for for a few decades. It's printed and in a fortnight it's all across Germany and people are reading this because one of the statements he's going to make in there is this, that if the Pope, his, his holiness has the keys of the kingdom and he is the under shepherd of Jesus Christ and he has the heart of Christ, why doesn't he of his own graciousness and free will forgive debt? Why, why if he has this power doesn't he just freely give as Jesus gave? Right? And it set off a firestorm. And so Luther was called to give an account. And so between the time of his posting of that in 1520, when he was excommunicated from the church, there were a number of debates, two in particular, the, the, the debate in Augsburg, uh, and then eventually one in Leipzig. In, in Augsburg, um, he said this to Cardinal Katzian or Thomas Vio, the Pope could err and denied the Pope was above Scripture. Whoa, that's a shot across the bow of Rome. By this time, he's come to realize, wait a second, Pope's just a man like the rest of us. You ought to respect him. Okay, and he does say some things that are good, but he's not above Scripture, right? Because they have erred. And you can show it throughout history where they have erred and still err to this day, I might add. In Leipzig, he debated perhaps the prominent theologian of the day, uh, Johann Eck. And he would go on to state not only could the Pope err, but the church councils could as well. And they have in different places. So if the Pope, church, and church councils could err, what do you have as a sure authority? And Luther said, Scripture. Scripture alone. So where, where, where does this come from? It arose out of a view of the inerrancy of Scripture. If Scripture is God-breathed, 2 Timothy 3, 
If God, as he says in Psalm 138, verse 2, that he, he exalts his word above his own name, if we're told in Psalm 119 that the sum total of thy word is truth, and your righteousness, your righteous ordinances are everlasting, if Moses could say to the children of Israel in Deuteronomy 31 32, this is your life. This, this law, this word of God that you've been given, this is your life. This is where your life is centered. It's in the word of God. It stands to reason that if it is true and it does not err, then it must be the only infallible rule and authority for faith and practice. Okay, that must be. And so if we look at Scripture, what, what is a pope? What is a pastor? What is a missionary? What does a student, what does an instructor say? And you examine Scripture as the Bereans did in Acts 17 11. Does it compare to Scripture? Is it what Scripture says or is it contrary to it? And it's, we're not talking, uh, we're not stating the fact that Scripture tells you everything about life. It doesn't tell you how to fix your toilet if it's, if it's plugged up. It doesn't tell you how to fix your car if it's not running, right? It doesn't tell you how to plant corn. But everything that you need to know theologically, truth-wise, to know God and live for Him and address life on a wisdom basis daily is contained in the Word of God. Okay? doesn't mean you, you and I all equally understand it all at the same time. Okay, doesn't mean there isn't a place for study, but it's simply stating that what you need to know and to live your life in godliness before Him in obedience is in Scripture. And so when it talks about faith, it is the supreme authority. When it talks about grace, when it speaks about creation, when it talks about the character of God, when it tells us what the church is and who comprised the church, it is the last word on the subject. You can have 50 different theologians from 50 different denominations and or religious groups, but at the end of the day, when it comes down to it, what does Scripture say? Is what Luther came to. Because if this is the true inerrant word of God, the very breath of God, then this is the one standard that doesn't change. And by that, I can bank and stake my life on it for all eternity. And that really became the rallying cry because that would be called the formal principle of the Reformation. What do I mean by that? It is the foundation. It is the settling point. It is, is, it is the concrete beneath your feet from which everything else can be built up on. This, this book is going to point you to Christ alone for salvation. Not a church, not a pastor, not a pope, uh, not, a, not an order, not a, not a group, not a sect. It's going to point you to Christ in Christ alone. There is no other name under heaven by which men and women must be saved. Acts 4.12, excuse me. Right? There is no other name. There's none. And so it points us that way. How is this salvation, this Christ received? This, this scripture tells us is by faith. And that is, it is the grace of God at work. Both are a gift. And it tells us why he does it. And that is for his glory. And you say, well, that sounds really kind of conceited. Yeah, but understand this. Those of you who read last semester, Delighting in the Trinity, Delighting in the Trinity, he wants you to enter into that joy. This isn't glory like some athlete this past weekend, if you watch any of the football games, as they strut into the end zone and do their little dance and everything, point at their chest. You know, or they pick up Aaron Rodgers and smack him to the ground, which didn't happen often enough last Sunday, for you Cowboy fans, right? right? But they, they, do their, you know, they do their dance, you know, whatever, whatever they do. Look at me, look at me. That's not what it is. 
in that glory, the sum total display of who He is. And in that moment, as you and I are with Him, we enjoy all the grandeur and all the glory. So not glory for His benefit, so He can say, but you wish you were like me. No, it's not that at all. So we can delight in Him. Delight in unbroken fellowship. Delight in love that is really true, that's other-centered. A love that delights in others enjoying that same process and experience with you. And so it's for His glory. And uh, so that's just a really brief overview, if you will. And uh, so what we're, what we're going to do on Thursday is we're going to look at sola scriptura itself, give you a better definition of it, uh, what it means, what it doesn't mean, um, how the church responded, by I say that the church in Rome responded to it. Um, and then why is it important? Why, why is it important? I mean, that's 500 years ago. I mean, that, that is ancient history, right? Uh, I know some of us look like we're 500 years old, but, but trust us, we're not. Uh, we're going to look at that this is still what separates and distinguishes us from sectarian groups. I'm going to define that for you. At church history, guys, we're going to get it a little ahead of the, uh, the program here. But why denominationalism isn't always a bad thing. It can be, but there's a difference between sectarian and denominational. And it comes out of this time period. See, the sectarians are the ones who say, we alone have the truth. We have another source that you don't have. And so to know the truth, you need to be part of our group. Okay, and, and there's, there's some huge problems with that. Uh, we're we're going to look at the age that we live in as evangelicals, why it's important to us as evangelicals, because we seem to have people who claim to be evangelicals who don't act very evangelical-like. And by that, I mean not just in their behavior, but also in their theology. And so it is important to us. But it's also important in the age that we live in, the objections we get from uh, the Catholic Church and the Orthodox Church and liberal Protestantism, in our own culture, it's really, it's really mind-boggling to some of us how, how Protestantism for over 500 years can suddenly be what it looks like today in much of the world, which really is not what it was at all. Um, and so we're, we're going to look at that, how that impacts our life and why it's important, because you probably interact with it more than you realize on a daily basis. Not something that's here, hopefully not here at the Bible college, but maybe at work or at home, maybe even with family members or coworkers or, or other friends from back home, whatever it might be. You're, you're constantly bombarded with it. You're constantly bombarded by our society. Well, it's just an ancient document. I mean, everybody's got an ancient document. It's just some old manuscripts. You know, you've got to, are you sure that's in there? Man, you got rid of the dust and the moths. That's so old. So why do you want to live by that book, right? Why, why do you want to do that? You know, do, you, do you believe is this, this is the Word of God or it only contains the Word of God? So one somebody says, who are, you, who are you to tell me that I can't be fluid in my gender? Right? Who are you to tell me that I, I can't marry this person and that person? Who are you? This book? I mean, really, seriously, this, you take this book seriously? Do you really take it seriously? It matters. It matters. Do you have a source when you're asked those questions? When you're confronted with those issues, when you're being belittled, laughed at, or hollered at, in some cases, ridiculed, called one of a number of other adjectives that are popular in our society today, do you have a source you can go to and trust it? And I would submit to you, you do. And so that's what we're going to look at on Thursday. So I have a couple of minutes. I'll take some questions if you, you, you want. <clears throat> so it wasn't really a message. We're actually going to get in the text, you know, on there. But 
Okay, so just to give you some background as to how we, how we got where we were, that's a jet tour. Whew. Was it a 777, a 777? It's like, whew, or F-18 or whatever that new thing is. So, well, if there aren't any questions, let me pray for you. But I'm happy to stay after. And I know you've got lunch today, and you CrossFitters. You've got CrossFits. So don't overeat, right? I'm looking at Dan. Dan's <laughs> crying. <laughs> right. But anyway, let's, let's pray. Our Father, we come before you. And there's, I mean, how do you unravel 500 years of history? And yet at the same time, it has been, it has been an issue. Uh, from the very beginning. Uh, I think of the pagan kings as they looked at Israel, whether or prophets, or Daniel, or Ezekiel, or, or, or Micah, or Elijah, and would consider them troublers because they would speak the word of God. Those would look at and say, what, is, what does this seed picker have to say? As they said of Paul on Mars Hill. But what we have is your word. And while we may have changed and cultures may have changed and words may have changed and they've been added, mixed and matched and all the other things, really it still boils down to, is there a God? And if so, which one? And what have they given us to read, and to look at, and to see, to reveal about themselves. And we come to this book, and we look at it, and we read it, and we let it speak for itself, and it says, it is God-breathed. It is the very breath of God. And it tells us that it is true, and sure, and everlasting. Because it comes from you, the one who is true and everlasting. We know we can depend on it <clears throat> because it has shown itself faithful. As it's been preached, hearts have been changed. Father, as men and women have died for your faith, it has changed the lives of other people. And this book has not changed with whoever's in office or who's ever in control. It's not changed because of revolution or many squabbles, homes and families and churches and schools get in. It is what it is, the very Word of God. And so when we are faced with the issues of our day as the generations before us have been faced with the other issues, it still speaks to us. It still points us to you. It very clearly shows that you are a God above. As we sang earlier, who can compare to our God and our King? There is no one. There is nothing. And you tell very clearly how anyone regardless of language or color or economic position or sex or language or tribe or clan or family can know you. And while you may use people to aid in that process, as Danny mentioned about those who shared with undoubtedly everybody just practically in this room, they are tools of yours, but it is your word and your Holy Spirit. 
It is your word that convicts of sin, righteousness, and judgment. It is your word that brings healing as it tells us that Christ died for sinners. It is your word that shows us that we are sinners in need of a Savior. And it is your word that tells us you loved us so much and he loved us so much he paid the penalty for us, willingly did so. And he offers to us a free gift. Not a gift through a particular church, regardless of name. Not through a pastor or priest or mother or father, brother or sister or neighbor, but through you. You offer this gift. And when we lay hold of it, we enter into your forever family. Well, that is a message we get to take to the nations, as you know. Message based on truth. A message based, based on the true God, the one and only incomparable God. The one who delighted so much, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, you poured that out so we might delight as well in what real love is, what real peace is, what real harmony, what real reconciliation looks like. And I pray that we would hold these precious truths as precious, that in these days we would be willing still to take a stand for them, not in an angry, argumentative, punitive way, but as humble examples of your Son, who though reviled, he reviled not. Though stricken, struck not, did not strike back. And be willing to give our life for the glory of the cross. Father, may we do that. May it give us great courage to know that it is based on your truth. Because the men men, best of men are men at best. And the best of women are women at best. You alone are always true and holy and right. May your word give us that confidence and that peace, I pray in Christ's name. Amen.